What was your first MP3 that you downloaded? It was probably Metallica, I would imagine. I was big on Metallica at the time, back in the LimeWire days. So obviously couldn't get them on Napster. How long do you think it took to download? I think probably three and a half hours. The good old days. Mom, I need to download a song. Don't make a phone call. Welcome to episode five of the Back in the Band podcast, the show where we remember a simpler time in our lives when music and being in a band meant you could actually dream of one day living the life of a rock and roll star. But here we are, just happy to even fit in the same L-sized stained t-shirt that we bought in 2002. Like the last episode, we'll be asking today's guest about the hoodies they wore, the gigs that they saw, the songs they learned, the money they burned, the music they made, their dreams of getting laid, their first MP3s, the printed and ripped CDs the strings they snapped, and the bands that they clapped. So in a world where we no longer have to watch Sun 41 in too deep on Kerrang! 10 times a day, let's get going. Lee, episode five, bloody Nora, mate. I'm having a really good time doing these. It's been really good getting nostalgic with everyone, remembering everything that we haven't even thought about in like the last 20, 25 years. It's been so good, yeah. When I spoke to Joe, he was like, oh, cool, mate, I haven't seen you in 17 years. I was like, it's like half my lifetime, but... (laughs) Uh, it's it quality to see him he was a good good crack man yeah really really good man and I, and I don't think i've actually stopped listening to sixth ever since we had that chat with joe and yeah it's really taken me down a rabbit hole and listened to loads of different tracks and albums and music that i was absolutely obsessed with all those years ago yeah so good i also went on a bit of a rabbit hole a bit of sixth then i went down a mud vein one and then ended up on a bit of pearl drum but yeah the main thing i'm noticing is everyone we've had so far they seem to be really enjoying talking about these times as well joe was like Really hyped about this. I'm sure today's guest will be as well. I was listening to this podcast at the weekend. Uh, it was talking about this, and this is a bit cheesy, by the way. This is like a bit of highbrow content for this podcast, but it was talking about moments of awe, and you can just imagine how American that is. But it was basically talking about what that can mean for individuals in terms of happiness, etc. And it just talked a lot about live music, and that's the bit that clicked with me. And I was like, hang on, this is what Joe was talking about a little bit last week about those communal experiences and made me think that some of the best experiences probably we'll all ever have will be centred around live music being played. But I was wondering how you find that over in Spain, mate, at the moment as well. I think, to be honest, it's one of the things I missed the most, actually, so far, apart from the people, of course. But yeah, some absolutely amazing memories, even here in Spain, to do with music. I remember a few years back, we went to a bar in Sevilla, and it was just a typical sort of corner bar, flamenco bar, that had this old boy playing with his nephew on the acoustic guitar in the the cajon, and it was just such a good vibe. Like, everyone just really enjoying it and embracing music for being music, not over the top, you know? It was just just down to the roots, and just stands out as, honestly, like one of the top five moments of my life, I swear. Even when I came over last summer, there was some sort of fiesta going on in the town, wasn't there? Some sort of festival, and it was all that. It just brings the people together, man. That's what it's all about. Speaking of bringing people together, let's introduce our guest today. So today's guest is David Bentley. No, not one of Arsenal's most exciting prospects in early 2000s, but in fact, my old uni classmate, David Bentley of Northwich fame. I first met Dave at Huddersfield Uni, where we both did a popular music production degree. Outside of that, while I wasn't beating him daily on Pro Evo 6 on the PS2, Dave actually had the generosity to support me coming along to some of our woeful gigs in my band at the time. Of course, the difference between Dave and I being that he actually knows how to sing and play good music, so much so that he's actually got an album coming out that he's been working on for 10 years with his own band, David Bentley and The Draft. 
impressive stuff. But of course, we don't want to hear about that because that is impressive. What we want to hear about is the tragic backstories of band days gone by. Dave, how you doing? Yeah, good, man. Thanks very much for having me. You're very welcome. So first question then, get us straight in the mood. What was your first MP3 that you downloaded? What was it? Oh my God, the first one I downloaded. It was probably Metallica, I would imagine. I was big on Metallica at the time, back in the LimeWire days. So obviously nice. couldn't get them on Napster, but LimeWire, straight there for a bit of Metallica. How long do you think it took to download? I think probably three and a half hours. The good old days. Mom, I need to download a song. Don't make a phone call. I remember that we used to have some real problems with our internet connection just all of a sudden just going to absolute shit early doors just because <laughs> far too much activity going on there and getting in a lot of trouble for the AOL bills at the time. Now it's all gas bills, mate. Nightmare. Back then it was old AOL bills. Different now. I don't even know what you play, Dave. What do you play? These days I'm a kind of singer-songwriter, but I started off very much as a guitarist. Learning the guitar when I was about 10 years old. It was a brief Queen fascination when I was a very young man, so had a bit of a Brian May thing going on. And then... <laughs> not, not with your hair, though, right? <laughs> not with the hair, no, unfortunately. <laughs> I could never grow anything that triumphant, I don't think. <laughs> but I ended up singing and playing guitar in bands in my teens, but mainly just because I would give it a go, whereas everybody else was just, they're never going to sing. No one was going to sing. And I had some ideas, and I'd written down some absolutely atrocious lyrics along the way. So, yeah, I ended up being the singer, singer-guitarist. Amazing. So had you been covering songs before you started putting those ideas forward or was that straight away you're doing your own stuff? I was always a bit of a dick about covers. I was that prick that said that... <laughs> oh, you wouldn't have liked us then. It didn't really... Um, <laughs> I didn't really see the point personally, although I was made to realise quite quickly that no fucker really cared who we were or what we were doing. So playing a couple of covers along the way was quite an important thing to do. In writing. It's the only time they paid attention when you were playing. When I started to learn the guitar, basically, all I did was learn how to play songs. So I'd learn how to play Beatles songs or Radiohead songs or Queen songs, whatever my guitar teacher taught me. But it was more just these are the chords, these are the lyrics, play them. And I don't know, like on the one hand, I think that was great. But on the other, I got a bit bored of it and decided that I was going to turn these into my own. So I might play the chords to Sweet Child of Mine and just write a different song. So... It was a, a plagiarist's future began early doors, I think. I'm always interested in the early lyric inspirations because I was exposed to Stu's, you know, 14-year-old lyrics in high school. It's absolutely fascinating. What was your sort of inspiration? You know, any early lyrics or early songs that stand out for you, man? I definitely remember having a song that I played at school once called The Suicide Song. I was as happy as they come. <laughs> like, I had no Jesus. problems in my life at all. But when you're a teenager, that's just the kind of thing you do, isn't it? That's what you write about, so... Yeah, that was the kind of thing. It was very doom and gloom. So that, that was the first song in your school band. What was the name of that band? So our band at school was called Cartel. And I can't, I was trying to remember earlier on what the first song was called. And I can't remember. And then we had a song called Dive that was the first one we tried to record, I think. But I did find some old set lists earlier on, but I can't remember where I've stashed them away. But yeah, it was all, we didn't play a lot of major chords. It was all E minor, almost all of it in E minor for the first five or six original. That was what Metallica played in most of the time, wasn't it? E flat. Of course it was. E flat minor. <laughs> What's the inspiration for that, do you know? We would have been 14, I reckon, at the time, Will and I. And then a kid that Ben was, Ben went to a different secondary school, a kid called Cookie that he was at school with. 
And Ben and Will had been playing covers, drums and keyboard covers around kind of school fates and stuff and calling themselves Phobia. Amazing. And Will asked me if I wanted to come along and play (laughs) guitar. With an F probably. So I went along with my Epiphone Les Paul Goldtop knockoff and played along with those songs they were covering, which as far as I can remember, all they played were Robbie Williams covers, I think. Let's talk about that more. (laughs) Practice in the church where Ben's mum went and she had the keys to, and we play... What is it? Let me entertain you, etc. And I think I went three or four times and then I was like, oh, you know what? I like the idea of this, but it's 99% shit. So (laughs) maybe if we could turn this into something that was actually a band like our band, that would be good. So in terms of your own material, did you guys ever get anything recorded or any sort of little EPs recorded or demos made? Yeah, we did a couple of EPs. The first time we got a chance to do that, we were quite lucky in that. So a guy called Richard Brown was doing some kind of community work around young bands and getting them a chance to record. And he was putting together this compilation called Wild Skies that he... So we went along and we recorded a track in a place in, I think, in Cambridge and got a track on there, which went out, which sounded okay. We thought it was brilliant at the time. Everybody was excited we'd done it. So yep. we went... Um, Magical, wasn't it? Was that yeah. your first time in a studio? Oh, 100%. It felt like we'd grown up because we were only about 15 years old at the time. But secondly, it just felt like we'd got free reign to just create whatever we wanted in there. We put that on an EP. Or we put that one track on an EP with a couple that we'd recorded ourselves. That sounded absolutely terrible. I think one, <laughs> we'd done a bit of a Tascam two Amazing. track pa- tape job on one of them. And on the other one, I so think good. we just, one mic just played really poorly live. So we whacked that on a CD and started uh, giving that to friends and trying to get a quid for it, gigs and stuff like that. I was going to say, there was a bit of chat going around on what stuff before this. Uh, was there a controversial title to one of these EPs or CDs with Cartel? Yeah, potentially. It depends on what side of the fence you sit on. The debut cartel CD was actually called Music to Beat Dogs To. Does it make you feel worse saying it out loud? It has to. It makes me feel worse that my beloved family pet was the front cover. Has it, has it back it was volume one as well? Like, <laughs> obviously implied there's going to be more beating. What's the story behind it? Where did that come from? So, as I can remember, I think my friend Ash took a picture of my dog, Jude, that we thought was brilliant. And I can't remember who suggested we call it Music to Beat Dogs to, but it's exactly the kind of teenage decision that is so nonsensical that it's perfect when you look back on it. We gave that CD to teachers and parents' friends. <laughs> Different back in the early noughties, wasn't it? You could beat up animals and get away with it. Now these snowflakes are out there, you can't do nothing. <laughs> the world's changed. Broken Britain, isn't it? <laughs> So you guys had some pretty respectable stuff going on, right? So the sound of things, like a few gigs here and there. You told us about some shows with some pretty well-known acts at the time. We did okay in that I think, like, we could play. The thing is, our songs weren't great. I sounded terrible out front for quite a while, just because, mainly because I hadn't really intended on being a singer. I was quite intent on sounding American because that's what everything you can listen to 
sounded sure. like until, to be honest, things started to take a bit of a turn during the kind of British, I don't really want to say emo because it just wasn't anything like the American emo movement. That's when that, you got into Scissor Sisters quite heavily, wasn't it? That's yes, when you wanted to change that was when it was. Yeah. That's wow. when the costumes really started to come in. But no, we were really into bands like 100 Reasons, Hell is for Heroes, stuff Love like it. that in particular. That was our thing at the time. And my, I can't take credit for it, to be honest, but our drummer, Ben, one of my best mates, he was really a driving force behind just getting out there. He was a little bit of a businessman. He was just so good at getting us gigs and he was just persistent and he sounded like he was a lot older than he was. And he just got us in front of some people, some good promoters in Peterborough and Cambridge and we got some decent, we got on some decent bills in the end. As we got better, at first we played, like I said, a lot of hotels, schools, just anywhere we could get a gig with mates and stuff like that. We started playing at the Met Lounge in Peterborough and that's where it really started kicking off. But like I said before as well, Ben's brother Pete and his bandmate Dom in Scanner, they were really kind of instrumental in just saying like, oh, let these guys come along. They're not really old enough to get in, but give them a gig. It's kind of the thing. We touched on that in the last episode, especially that, what, 17, I guess, right? You're at that age where everyone wants to start going out, have a drink. And if you can almost guarantee that you're going to bring a certain amount of people, it was like, great, I don't care how shit you are. I'm a promoter. I need to make money. So we were 15 at first. So it was really tricky. We were lifts all um, the way. By the time we were 17, it was good because we could all pile into my Master 121 that I got off my grand. But like... <laughs> amps on top, like tied down with the ropes. We got the whole band, all of the gear, including the drum kit in that car, to get to gigs. What? When we had to. I promise you we did. It's absolutely amazing. But yeah, through those gigs at the Met Lounge, we ended up playing with Martin Gretsch. That was a good gig. We played amazing. with Hell is for Heroes, which was real high point for me, just because I absolutely loved them at the time. And their drummer watched us play. And I remember and had a like, good half hour chat with me afterwards, telling us... To stop. It was, it was probably the best <laughs> advice we'd had. <laughs> yeah. Probably the best advice we'd had from anybody, to be honest. It sounds pretty respectful in terms of what you guys got up to and stuff, and far better than anything we've achieved in neural distortion, that's for sure. Did you ever get to a point you were like, I think we could, we're going to make this, we're going to be famous? We were somewhere in between, I think. None of us were foolish enough to think we were going to make it. And to be honest, we didn't really... We tried really hard. It was more a goal for us to play with bands that we liked and play in rooms that we liked to go and watch bands in. We never, I can't yeah. remember us ever being any under any illusions that we would send this CD with a photo of my dog on that said we like to beat dogs to some exec somewhere and then he would give us a record deal. We wanted to get up in front of our mates and have a good time and we did that. It was just brilliant, feeling like yeah. you were part of something and just having yeah. that weekly, like, we're going to do this, we're going to do it as well as we can. Like, our practices were good. We would practice really hard before gigs. And we would get more serious in them, as in falling out with each other occasionally. I think it's hilarious looking back on it now. We fell out in the same way, like, siblings would fall out. Just absolute ridiculous stuff that's Nonsense. like... Yeah. You spend too much time together, don't you? You're spending, like, seven or eight hours with any man at 15 years old. You're going to start losing your shit eventually. Tell us some of those, those nonsense arguments, man. Mainly, <laughs> almost all of the arguments would come from the fact that Ben and Will were good musicians that had learned to read music young. Between those two, they would find it so incredibly frustrating that I did not 
understand musically <laughs> like anything <laughs> that was going on but i would Dave, have you just can you just be better but just no, stop being so shit it Dave. wasn't quite it wasn't quite as simple as that because obviously it was a balancing out between the fact that i'd generally written what became the song i hadn't written the song but i'd come yep. with the chord sequence and i'd come with the words and then they would turn it into something much better or we would all of us but i wouldn't understand why i'd done anything that i'd done and it was always quite like Ben would just say, like, how many times is that chord sequence happening? And I'd just say, I don't know, mate. And he'd be like, how many bars? I don't fucking know how many bars. I just do it until I, <laughs> I feel like I've done just enough. like this, mate. Come yeah. on, do it again. No. Just I just do it do until it I felt like I'd had enough. But they did not like that. I remember we were recording a track <laughs> once. We were all hyped up, ready to record, start recording the first song. I played my bit for the intro on my guitar and then will played what was the same because we were both playing the same thing because we weren't really clever enough to have assumed we might make any kind <laughs> of harmony or anything and he was just playing a completely different rhythm to me and we'd never noticed that was happening there was just this argument for about an hour that i gave into i think in the end there was never going to be a winner because he was coming at it musically and saying i'm playing this because this is right and i was saying i fucking wrote it mate so, like, <laughs> how can I be wrong? <laughs> and in the end, I think I just backed down because I realised, like, he's probably just right because he just knows, doesn't no he? No one's going to listen to it anyway, so it doesn't matter, does it? Ask yeah, yeah, ultimately. Absolutely nobody. Not getting radio play. Chill out. <laughs> Sounds like you did a few decent gigs as well, but are there any sort of shit gigs that stand out? Ones that uh, had about three people in or anything? Yeah. I played a fair few. Absolutely loads of those. They could be fun in their own right. One of them that was particularly annoying. Yeah. I remember playing <laughs> um, another one. It was like a very old, run like an old cinema, but they just had sofas and stuff in there. But we used to play one of our songs and in the middle of it, we would just kick into The Trooper by Iron Maiden just for a bit. And I think I nicked that from Sum 41. I think Sum 41 was doing it at the time. There were these guys there, proper metalers, quite old. Like they would have been in their 40s, I think. And one of them got really angry about it and was just pointing at me and screaming, this is Iron Maiden. And I was just like, I was trying to convey, I will say this at the end of the song, just let us finish the song. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he got so angry about it. He went to the toilets and he took his boxes off and he came out and he threw them at me. <laughs> <laughs> and then he hung them on the mic stand. He hung them on the mic stand and just left them there. No, I'm not having that. <laughs> That's insane. Just, did you carry on playing? Oh, yeah. Professional. <laughs> but what did he just stay and watch the rest of the set? Or I can't remember whether I ever looked out to the audience again. But Couldn't get past the sight of his underwear. I assume he was probably still there. But, but I mean... What did you do with the underwear? Did you leave it or did you know, well, can you just move that? I think I just left it there. I can't remember anything more than that. It was a shocking moment. Yeah, I could definitely... Safely say you're the first guest we've had on. You've pissed off an audience member so much they threw their pants at you. Yeah, um, definitely. Might be idea. the last as well. Might yeah. be. Oh man! Speaking of being shit, yeah. so you're a father now. Here's a question for you: If your kids were in a band in the same age as you were doing things from 14, 15, 16, 17, and you were kind of like, "Yeah, but you're a bit shit," would you tell them? No, not at all. I hope they will be. And I hope they will be shit as well. Well, I hope um, they'll be shit, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's all part of it, isn't it? Nobody wants to look back on their high school band and it was really good because you're Taylor Swift no, then, aren't you? Another choice. I wouldn't know the feeling. <laughs> I'd just be jealous, be it, annoyed at them. But brilliant looking back on it though, right? 
Yeah. It was just an amazing time. Like you got in some scrapes, but you got in some scrapes with your mates and it was great. Last question for me, if you could give yourself a bit of advice for being in the band at that time, what would it be? I think just play even more. Like we played a lot, but yeah. play even more, go everywhere and play. Like we were in a weird position because we were so young when we'd started. Mm that we would play at battles of the bands where we, there was one I remember where the judges at the end gave us a little special mention because they said we would probably would have won it, but it was a vote for every beer you bought at the bar and we weren't allowed to go to the bar. <laughs> us and none of our friends voted at all. So it was a bit of a... It was Somewhat rigged you. money-making scumbags, eh? It was a bit of a learning wow. for us, but I just think play all the time. Just make the most of it. Enjoy every bit of it. So time now for our next feature, which we're still calling My Napster, where our guests can choose a track that most reminds them of their days being back in the band. Back in the day, we all spent countless hours downloading MP3s from Napster, LimeWire, Winamax, etc. to our dad's desktop computers. Every single track felt maybe just a little bit more special. So Dave, take us back to tell us what track you've chosen and why. So I am definitely going to choose... I Can Climb Mountains by Hell is for Heroes. Because at the time, Hell is for Heroes were what I wanted to be. Like for us, it was, we never got ideas above our stations. Nice little pun there, a little bit of 100 Whoa, Reasons. A little hello. bit of 100 Reasons seeping <laughs> through. But like, um, <laughs> we did look up to bands like that where it felt like they were never going to be Metallica. They were never going to be Radiohead. They were never going to be there forever, even though they are still around now somehow. But it looked like a level that we could aspire to in some way. That album, Neon Handshake, Hell is for Heroes, it was a real time of anticipating an album coming out. I remember waiting for that to be available, waiting to get that album. And within that track, a few of them, Night Vision, You Drove Me To It, on LimeWire. Get them on so LimeWire, whacking them on Minidisc, I think. And then obviously buying the CD, like a good boy when the CD came out. It was a good time being able to get hold of stuff like that and share it around. For some reason now, like everything is just so readily available. It's sometimes difficult yeah. to remind yourself to even share anything because everybody can get it whenever they want. Mm -hmm. Whereas then everybody used to That's share stuff. Effort, indeed, yeah. Different world, man. I remember, I remember Mark Miner, we were sat in one of our lecture. He was at the front and he said, I'm telling you now, in five years maximum, streaming is going to be massive. I remember sitting there going, talking about, mate, like, no, it won't be. Like, people will still be buying CDs, whatever. And it was f fucking bang on. It was like, everyone here will be paying £10 or something a month. And then Radiohead ruined it all, didn't they? So, final part of the show today, Dave, we're going to ask you a would you rather. So I'm going to give you two choices. First one, and you've got to choose from them. First choice, you no longer work in your current job, but you do get paid exactly the same money to play five gigs a week up and down the country in a cradle of filth band. So you've got to wear the full attire, the makeup, the leather gear, you know, the works, which I find incredibly hard to imagine you in. Or you only ever get to listen to Ed Sheeran songs for the rest of your life. So no other music in the world. Cradle of filth. <laughs> Danny Phil, <laughs> till I die. I think he's about my height as well. It'd be perfect. They didn't even let you finish the uh, Would You Rather. <laughs> I am not messing like, around. 
I have fallen out with family members about Ed Sheeran. People in my family, the ones that I maybe don't know so well, not through any reason other than you don't see people all the time, do you? You grow up. They all know that I was a musician or that I am a musician and to a certain extent, not really much anymore. But so that's always they, when they want to chat to me. And that's lovely because they want to talk to me about something that they don't care about. But it over the years, and it's not just family members, it's anybody that knows that, the constant like, oh, you should go on X Factor or what, what is oh, it like, Ed Sheeran? That drives me absolutely mad. <laughs> <laughs> Sheeran, sure. I, I'm not a fan of Sheeran, I'll say. I think he's a good businessman, though. I'll give him props, but yeah. My only Ed Sheeran story is he was headlining Glastonbury. I was there, and I walked off after 20 minutes. I was like, I had enough. He's got a drum loop pedal. He hasn't even brought a band out with him, the twat. He didn't even Five bring a band. <laughs> he didn't even didn't bring, even a, bring band. a band. He could have brought a band. He's so tight. Such a fucking tight He didn't ass. even didn't bring, bring a, a full-sized guitar with him. That is, Arsehole, <laughs> that's how that went. Speaking of ourselves, mate, I think we'll wrap it up there. But cheers for coming. Appreciate the chat and I hope you've enjoyed Thank it. Thank you very much for having me. It's been very enjoyable. Take a little walk down memory lane. Now that's the end of episode five. Some ridiculous stories from Dave. Really enjoyed that one, Lee. What do you think? This is another cracking episode. Obviously, Music to Beat Dogs 2 Volume 1 is the best <laughs> EP title I've ever heard. I mean, I'm never going to forget that. That's so good. And yeah, and I don't think we ever really found out the reason, and which is probably for the best, but just typical classic 15-year-old stuff, isn't it? Oh, good. And just like no one judging it either, just like handing it out and no one even mentioning it. <laughs> so, <laughs> cheers for the CD. But I particularly loved hearing about that guy that was so annoyed he was playing Iron Maiden threw his pants at him on stage. I mean, it, it's it's like... Did that actually happen, Dave? Might have to fact check you, mate. <laughs> Might have to fact check you. It's just so ridiculous. If you don't laugh, you'll cry, won't you? It's just one of those situations. But Yeah, I know it's just so hard to imagine how you'd even react to something like that. You you know, you hear the stories of girls throwing their under at you. They're so in love with you as a rock star, but not quite what you dream of just because you were covering Iron Maiden that some guy's just put his pants on your mic stand. Outrageous. It's like so odd, such odd behaviour. Very odd behaviour, but, you know, we're here for these stories and love them and have loved every second of it so far. So let's call a wrap on this one as well, episode five. As always, please do subscribe and rate the podcast with five stars. I mean, you can give us a one, but that would be quite harsh, wouldn't it? And as a way of saying thanks, Lee would happily send you a pair of his size 15 checkered Vans plimsolls. A massive thanks to Dave for being on the podcast today. If anyone's got any suggestions, please get in touch. And if you know us and you'd like to be a guest in the podcast or you know someone who might be up for it, just say hello and we'll send you a link to an AOL chat room to get you booked in. Thanks for listening.